Today we're going to have the first of two sermons focused on lost things being found. The big boss of a company called one of his employees about an urgent problem with one of their main computers. He dialed the employee's home telephone number and was greeted with a child's voice. Hello. It was a little quiet voice. Feeling put out at the inconvenience of having to talk to a youngster, the boss asked, Is your daddy home? Yes, said the small voice. May I talk with him? The man asked. To the surprise of the boss, the child, the child said no. Wanted to talk with an adult, the boss asked, Is your mommy there? Yes, came the answer. May I talk with her? Again, the little child said no. Knowing it was not likely that the young child would be left alone, the boss decided to try to leave a message with the person who's there watching over the child. Is there anyone there besides you? The boss asked the child. Yes, the child said, a policeman. Wondering what a cop was doing at his employee's home, the boss asked, may I speak to the policeman? No, he's busy, said the child. Busy doing what? Asked the boss, talking to daddy and mommy and the fireman. Came the answer, growing concern, and he became even worried. And then he heard what sounded like a helicopter through the earpiece on his phone. And the boss asked, what's that noise? A heliocopter, said the little voice. What is going on there, asked the voice. Now completely alarmed, in a hushed voice, the child answered, they just landed a helicopter. Alarmed and concerned, more than, and more than a little worried, the boss asked, why are they there? Still whispering, the young boy replied in a muffled, giggle voice, they're looking for me. <laughs> now, children never do that. But what a great search is done when something precious is lost. Today, we're going to talk about things that are missing, things that are lost, There's a whole chapter in the Bible about lost things. Luke 15 has three different stories about lost things. There's the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son, more commonly called the prodigal son. Today we're going to look at the first two stories. These stories are so approachable. They draw us in. We've all lost or misplaced something valuable. We can all identify with the characters in these stories that Jesus tells here in Luke 15. Please turn in your Bibles to Luke 15. Follow along as I read verses 1 through 10. Luke 15, verses 1 through 10. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep... If he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? 
And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Father, we pray this morning that you would teach us from your word. Holy Spirit, that you would challenge us from this word that you've inspired so that we might be more conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen. This morning we're going to look at four truths about the lost. But before we look at these two parables of Jesus, it's important to spend some time on the very first two verses of Luke 15, because they set the background to all three of these parables. They say now, uh, uh, these verses say that tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to Jesus. The Pharisee and the scribes, on the other hand, they were grumbling. This man receives sinners. He eats with them. You see, the first truth that we see in our passage today is that God has great compassion for the lost. The religious leaders of Jesus' day weren't too comfortable with the idea that Jesus was hanging out with people with questionable activities and backgrounds. The Pharisees thought that all religious leaders were supposed to follow certain rules. Only spiritual, religious, good people of good standing mattered. They thought that Jesus would be spending time with with them and not with the sinners and with the common folk, but with the in crowd, with the people who go to synagogue every Saturday, with the people who support the political and social ambitions of the Pharisees. One of the unspoken realities of any culture is that we tend to care more about people who are like us rather than people who are different socially or financially or ethnically. Jesus did not feel that way. And now how we should thank him that he didn't because we Gentiles owe our salvation to the Jewish king of kings. The Pharisees of Jesus' day, following long-standing oral tradition, would pray, thanking God that God had not made them Gentiles, slaves, or women. You see, all three of these groups of people were looked down on, excluded, even banned from participation in the regular Jewish religious activities. Rather than the, the Pharisees seeing themselves through eyes of compassion, they only saw themselves through their own self-righteousness. In Luke 18, 9-14, we catch a glimpse into the heart of the Pharisees. The scripture says that Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. He said two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, one a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like these other men, extortioners and unjust and adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes to, of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing afar off, wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. See, the Pharisees trusted in themselves and in their own self-righteousness, which led them to treat other people with contempt. The Pharisees had 
let their religious position affect their heart. Instead of humbly serving God and the people, they exalted themselves before God, justifying their behavior. They believed that their religious activity made them better than other people. The Pharisees had a gap between their profession of godliness and their practice of godliness. Their concern for the externals, looking like a godly person, led them to neglect the internals, the inner man, the matters of the heart. And thus it kept them from actually becoming a godly person. Jesus condemned the Pharisees for their attitude. Quoting Isaiah 29, 13, Jesus said of the Pharisees that they honored God with their lips, but their hearts were far from him. Jesus said to the Pharisees in Matthew 23, 25 through 26, said, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, then the outside may also be clean. God's focus is always first on the inside, always at the heart. False religion's focus is always on the outside, always putting on a show. The Pharisees' focus on the external observances of religious activities led them down the inevitable road of pride and legalism. Convinced of their own righteousness, they became prey to their own self-satisfaction and ended up rejecting the very righteousness of God that they thought they were passionately pursuing. It's critically important to remember 1 Samuel 16.7. It's a great verse, 1 Samuel 16.7. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance, on his height or his stature, because I've rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. The Lord looks at our heart. What a comforting thought. What a challenging thought. It's a comforting thought that God doesn't judge us by some hypocritical, external, religious standard. It's a challenging thought because God can see right through any religious facade that we have and look directly into our hearts. As you interact with God today, do so at the level of your heart, the internals, the inner man, not just the externals. It's so important that we don't allow the attitude of the Pharisees to creep into our lives. So where is your heart? Are you more of a religious person on the outside than you are on the inside? Do your heart and your actions agree? Do you have the tendency to evaluate yourself based on how you look to others? Has your spiritual life become one of status and externals instead of one of humility and thinking about the needs of others first? It's amazing how the pride and the sin of the Pharisees can so easily sneak into our lives. See, Jesus had compassion on the lost. Jesus welcomed and ate with sinners and tax collectors. Jesus also welcomed and ate with the Pharisees. See, Jesus didn't look at the outward appearance of a person. Jesus didn't look at their status or their political influence. He didn't look at their poverty, 
or he didn't look at their wealth. Jesus saw them the same as men and women who in their heart are desperate for salvation, for meaning, for hope, for life, for encouragement, for acceptance. Jesus has compassion on the lost. Jesus spoke to the heart of the castaway Samaritan woman at the well. Jesus spoke to the heart of the Roman centurion looking for healing for his servant. Jesus spoke to the heart of the outcast and the leper and the sickly by touching them and caring for them and healing them. Jesus had compassion for the lost. He spoke to the heart of the Pharisee Nicodemus who came to that secluded night meeting. Jesus spoke to the heart of a certain nobleman, a government official in the healing of his son. And Jesus spoke to the heart of a Canaanite woman, healed her daughter. From any walk of life, from any social status, from any ethnic background, from any financial standing, from the lowliest to the nobleman, Jesus saw them all through the eyes of his compassion. He loved them. He reached out to them. They were all the same. They were lost and in need of a savior. May we capture the heart of our Savior. May we have the same compassion of our Savior. May we be accused of loving and accepting people who are lost and in need of the Savior. Remember, this is the introduction to all three parables, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. One of the main points of all of these parables is that Jesus has compassion for the lost, that Jesus wants the lost to be found. Look again there at verse 1. It says that the outcasts of society, the sinners, were drawing near to him. Not only did Jesus have compassion on them, but his compassion was so demonstrable that it drew sinners near to him. One commentator wrote, It is significant that Jesus attracted sinners while the Pharisees repelled them. Lost sinners came to Jesus not because he catered to them, or compromise his message, but because he cared for them. He understood their need and he tried to help them, while the Pharisees criticized them and kept their distance. The Pharisees had knowledge of the Old Testament law and a desire for personal purity, yet they had no love for lost souls. Jesus didn't cater. Jesus didn't compromise. He cared. He loved He ate with them. Jesus attracted the average, everyday sinner person. Guess who those are? Us. People like you and me. But he repelled those who were caught up in their own false, self-righteous religion. How about us? When the world sees us, when the world interacts with us as Christians, as followers of Christ, Do they see the compassion of Christ? Do they see the judgment of the Pharisees? It's a critically important, evaluative point. Are people attracted to Jesus in us? Do they see him in us? Do they see his love and care for them so much so that they want what we have? Is our relationship with Jesus attractive? Or is it just fake religious hypocrisy, repelling the ones that God loves. 
Since our life goal as followers of Christ is to be like Christ, we must diligently strive to show the same compassion as our Lord, Him working through us to love people into relationship with Him. Luke 19.10 so powerfully states one of the very reasons that Jesus came. It says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. The very purpose of Jesus coming to this earth was to seek and to save the lost, to offer life, abundant life, eternal life to those who are lost. May we be known as a church that not only teaches and preaches the word of God true and faithfully, but may we be just as well known as a church that loves there's a church that's full of the same compassion of Christ as we seek to offer him to the lost people in our lives and the world around us. The next truth we're going to look at this morning is that God places great value on what is lost. In the parable of the lost sheep, the shepherd leaves his flock of 99 in the open country to go look for this one lost sheep. He could have come to many other conclusions. He could have said, well, hey, I got 99 sheep. You know, what's the big deal if I lose one? I'll just let it go. I probably wouldn't find it anyway. It's the sheep's fault anyway for getting lost. Or he could have said, you know, I, I have 99 sheep. I don't want to risk these 99 anymore. So I better watch and stay and protect what I have. That poor lost sheep's probably lost and eaten by some predator already anyway. I need to stay here in the safety with the 99. In the parable of the lost coin, the woman searches until she finds the coin. She says the ultimate spring cleaning, right? Looking for her lost coin. But she could have been happy and she could have just said, you know, hey, I got nine coins and they're safe and secure. She could have just said, you know, it's in my house. So I'm sure it's going to turn up one of these days. But in both cases, The focus wasn't on what they still had. The focus was on the value of the thing that was lost. The value of the one sheep to the shepherd was worth his time and his effort and the risk. The value of the one coin to the woman was worth her time and the effort and the not being satisfied until I find it attitude. See, the value of the lost person, the value of the one who does not know God, the value of the very ones who the Pharisees would so easily reject, and yet Christ would so wonderfully welcome. These precious ones are valuable. They're worth the time and the effort and the risk that it takes to reach them. As we see the loss through the eyes of the shepherd, through the eyes of the woman, through the eyes of Christ, We can understand the great value of the loss and we respond just as they did. We willingly give of our time to reach the loss. We willingly give of our effort to reach the loss. We willingly risk ourselves to reach the lost. Think about this with me. What does it mean to be lost? What does it mean to be lost in these two parables? It means you're out of place, right? It means you're not where you belong. Sheep belong with the flock. The sheep is lost because it's not where it belongs. The coin belongs in their purse. The coin is lost because it's out of place. 
People are lost because they're out of place, because they're not where they belong. They're not where they were designed to be. See, there's a specific place of life. There's a place of hope. There's a place of salvation and of purpose for every human on planet Earth, for each one of us. So what does it mean to be found? The sheep then is found and put back in the fold. The uh, coin is found and put back in the purse. They're back in their right place. They're back where they belong. You see, that's salvation. Salvation is getting back to the right place, the right place where we belong, the only place where you can find real life and true life and soul salvation and meaningful purpose is going back to the place we were designed for. Because, folks, we were designed to be in relationship with our designer, our Lord, our God. See, Adam and Eve rebelled against God. They were in this perfect garden. And instead of choosing God, they chose sin and self over God's plan and design. They chose to leave the place where they belonged. And now in sin, we as in Adam and we in our own choices rebel against God. And we choose sin and self over God's design and plan. But folks... A second Adam has come. A new and better Adam has come. And he has come to seek and to save all those who have fallen into sin. He came to take us back to the place where we belong. With him. His father in relationship to the one who has designed us. Can you see it? Salvation is bringing the lost back to where they belong. Are you lost? Are you not where you belong? Now, you could be sitting here today and have your life all together and still be lost. And you might be sitting here today and you just know in your heart that you don't belong to Christ, that you're lost. Guess what today is? Today is a day you're hearing the best news you've ever heard in your whole life. Because today is a day you are hearing that Jesus Christ came to seek and to save the lost. You and me. So many of us. Turn to him today. Call out to Jesus as your Savior and Lord, as the forgiver of your sins, as the leader of your life. And he will take you from lost to found. He'll bring you into his family where you belong. The next truth that we're going to look at this morning is that it takes great perseverance to reach the lost. Reaching the lost isn't easy. It's dangerous for the shepherd to leave the flock and search for the sheep. Instead of staying in a nice pasture land, he had to go onto the rocks and the steep slopes and the holes and the ditches. See, the shepherd was responsible for the sheep. If one is missing, the shepherd had to pay for it unless he could prove that somehow it was killed by a predator. He was responsible for the sheep. Reaching the lost is not easy. The woman had to light a lamp and carefully search every dark, shadowy place in her house. She had to clean and sweep the whole place, moving furniture and all the other items to check underneath them. It's no small endeavor. All the family members are involved. 
to find this lost coin. It's like a police APB, right? It's an all-points bulletin on finding the missing coin. Many times, haven't you, I have, even in the bright of day, I've taken out a flashlight to look for a lost item, to look under the furniture, to look in the dark corners and closets. You see, when the lost item is something that you really want, when the lost item is something that's dear to your heart, when the lost item is of such great value, when the lost item is your responsibility, there is nothing that we will let stand in the way until we find it. With great perseverance and persistence, we search until the lost is found. As we, through Christ, seek the lost, we need to step out of our comfort zone and take deliberate efforts to bring the lost to Christ, to help them grow in Christ. It takes effort and energy. It takes prayer and commitment. It takes focus and finances. It takes organization and perseverance. It has to be something more than just, well, we'll do it someday. Reaching the lost, helping them grow in Christ, has to be the heartbeat of who we are as individuals and as a church of Jesus Christ. For it's the very purpose that Christ came to seek and to save the lost. It's the very mission he has given us as the church. It's our responsibility. Perhaps there's someone in your life that's lost, someone very close to you, someone you love deeply, a friend, a parent, a child, a sibling, a spouse. Perhaps it's your coworker or your neighbor or a relative. You know what Jesus is saying to you today? Don't lose hope. Keep on persevering. Step out of the comfort zone. Make the deliberative efforts to bring them to Christ. It's part of our obedience to Christ to share with them his truth and what he has done to us. See, God is still working. And you never know when or what God will use to bring our loved ones into his kingdom. You see, Jesus is still seeking and saving the lost. He's not given up. And neither should we. Our last point today is so wonderful. Did you know that all of heaven rejoices when the lost is found? Luke 15, 5 and 6 says of the shepherd, when he found it, he lays this sheep on his shoulders. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors and said to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. The woman says, With the lost coin, when she has found it, she calls together her friends and her neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. The shepherd and the woman call their friends and their neighbors together to celebrate with them. The lost has been found. They rejoice. They hold this impromptu party. They're overjoyed and they want to share their abundance of joy with their friends. You know, when something is lost that's so valuable, that's so significant, there's anguish and there's pain. But when that something that was lost is found, our rejoicing is so great, it's uncontainable. It just overflows for all to see. Now, just to make sure that we don't miss the point of this important application, Jesus applies the truth for us. Look then at Luke 15, verses 7 and 10. Jesus says, 
Just so I tell you that there is more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Now, the 99 righteous persons refers back to the Pharisees. You see, they thought, remember, they thought they were righteous. They don't need repentance. But God and all of heaven rejoiced at the repentance of a sinner, not at the self-righteous pride of a religious acting person. You could translate verse 7 kind of like this. There's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 self-righteous religious persons who think they have no need of repentance. One person wrote, 99 righteous persons who keep all the rituals and festivals and all the rules bring no joy to heaven. One sinner confessing his sin and repenting sets off party time in heaven. God is concerned about the lost who admit they are lost and turn back to him. He wants people to put their sinful life behind them and follow him. Pharisees never do this. Why? They never realize they're lost. Not only did the Pharisees never realize they were lost, but they don't rejoice over a lost sinner that has repented. You see, their priorities are so out of whack, so contrary to God's priorities, that they don't rejoice over what all of heaven is rejoicing over. May it never be said of us, May our priorities never be so out of whack. May we rejoice with what heaven rejoices. May we rejoice the heart and the purpose of God. Jesus reiterates the truth of the rejoicing in heaven in verse 10. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Jesus is telling us that there is rejoicing in heaven There's rejoicing in the very presence of the angels of God when a sinner repents. Jesus says that heaven, the very activity around the throne room of God, includes rejoicing over sinners' repentance, over turning from sin and turning to Christ. There's rejoicing in the adoption of a new child into God's family. There's rejoicing in the saving faith of a new follower of Jesus Christ. Perhaps you've heard that song from years ago from the Gaither Vocal Band. That's when the angels rejoice. Remember the chorus goes like this. There's only one thing that we're sure about that can make those angels jump and shout. It's when a sinner makes the Lord his choice. That's when the angels rejoice. Now it's a fun song. But it helps bring home the truth that there is rejoicing in heaven when a sinner makes the Lord his choice. Perhaps we need to do a little bit more rejoicing here on earth. A little bit more in line with the priorities of heaven. When a sinner makes the Lord his choice. If there's rejoicing around the throne room of God, I am sure that God would want us to rejoice as well. See, there's a great difference between Christianity and all the other religions of the world. Christianity teaches us that we are lost. We're the lost persons, and we can't find God by ourselves. So God's Son, Jesus Christ, came to find us, to seek and to save the lost. And all other world religions, on the other hand, the person is trying to find God. God is the one who is lost. 
God is the one who is hidden. And it's a person on a journey to find God. He's hidden and unreachable. What a difference. It's a difference that makes all the difference. Because Jesus loved us first, and he's seeking to save the lost. Maybe today is your day to go from lost to found and to bring all of heaven to rejoicing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you now for the power of your word. We thank you for the truth of your son, Jesus Christ. That we never chose him, he chose us. That we weren't seeking him, he was seeking us. That we weren't loving him, he was loving us. He ran us down to show us all that he's done for us to seek and to save the lost. Father, for us who are followers, who are now found, who are now back in design in relationship with you, who are back where we belong in relationship with God, we thank you that Jesus was proactive. Father, that you were proactive in your love and sending him. Spirit, that you were proactive in convicting us. And we pray right now that you might be doing that right now in our midst, proactively reaching out in your love into the heart and soul. But someone here would have to be honest and say that they're lost. If you're honest today and you're feeling that conviction, you're feeling that movement of the Spirit in your life, ABC, admit. Admit your sin. Admit that you've fallen short. Believe. Believe in Jesus. Believe in who he is. Believe in what he did on the cross was for you. Believe that he rose again after three days, securing salvation and eternal life. And then confess. Confess him as your Lord and Savior. Confess him as the leader and forgiver of your life. Right now, in your own prayer, in your own words, pray to him. And Jesus told us, And when we do that, that's when the angels rejoice. In Jesus' name, amen.